0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the podcast Revolution Z. It's the 14th episode, and this episode is entitled Participatory Planning. Before getting into it, I just want to make a brief request. I would like you, if at all possible, to visit the website of Patreon. It's an institution, an operation, that facilitates uh, raising funds and getting support for projects. And I'm using it for... The podcast Revolution Z. So if you are interested in that and if you'd like to perhaps help us out, you can go to www.patreon.com/revolution Z, and all the information is there. OK, now getting on to it. This episode tries to find a way of doing what's called economic allocation that is compatible with and that even facilitates having an equitable, self-managed, classless economy. We have to find something new for allocation because, as we saw in our last episode, neither markets nor central planning fulfill our requirements. Markets and central planning each demolish self-management. They destroy solidarity. They violate equity. In fact, they annihilate equity. And they even destroy diversity. And they propel class division and class rule. However, we need to be clear that our new approach to allocation has to not only fit well with our favored economic structures so far, the ones we've talked about and developed, remuneration for duration intensity and onerousness of socially valued labor, self-managing workers' and consumers' councils, and jobs balanced for empowerment effects, but it also has to accomplish the specific tasks of allocation. But what are those tasks? It has to determine relative values for economic items. More exactly, it has to determine the true social and ecological costs and benefits of economic activities. And more, allocation also has to facilitate workers and consumers using these true measures to settle on inputs and outputs of production and consumption. That's a mouthful. So to start what will surely be one of our more demanding episodes, first we have to ask, what do true social costs and benefits even mean? Suppose we make a car. What does it cost? What are its benefits? We need to answer those questions because if we don't know the costs of producing the car and we don't know the benefits and perhaps even the costs of its consumption, how can we decide if it is a good idea to make the car instead of making something else, for example, means of public transport? If we don't know the car's full costs and benefits, how can we decide if we want more cars or fewer cars? One thing to note is that the cost that we should take into account should go well beyond the cost that current owners of automobile plants consider. Current owners want to maximize profits while retaining the rights to accrue those profits for themselves. They are not moved by societal well-being. They are not moved by workers' well-being. They are not moved by the planet's condition. So information about all those things is not on their agenda. Their position as owners and market competitors means they must seek profits or be replaced. And the only information they want is that which bears on seeking profits. Obviously, we want to get beyond that. So unlike current owners, in a good future economy, we should want all actors to advance important social values such as solidarity, equity, and self-management while also meeting the needs and developing the potential of all those involved in activities, such as workers, consumers, and even bystanders. So, consider making cars. We should want workers' positions in making cars propel them to be concerned with their own well-being. We should want consumers' well-being, neighbors' well-being, society's well-being, and ecological well-being to all also be taken into account and we should want car worker circumstances to provide them with the information and the skills needed to successfully pursue those aims. Currently, in contrast, owners of automobile plants take into account the amount they have to pay for steel, or for tires, or for technologies employed, for rent and for electricity, and the wages they have to pay, as well as taking into account any significant effects of their workplace activities on their balance of power and thus on their ability to keep taking their preferred giant share of revenues. Owners pay attention, that is, to what affects their narrow agenda, profit-seeking. In contrast, we should want all future economic actors, workers and consumers alike, who are involved in car production or car consumption, to take into account the costs of producing, transporting, and consuming cars, including the impact that doing so has on workers, on consumers, on bystanders, on communities, and on the environment. And we should, of course, also take into account the benefits for those same affected constituencies, both individually and collectively. It follows that what we mean by true social costs and benefits is an accurate member of the personal, social, and ecological gains and losses associated with the production and consumption of a car, or for that matter, of any other product, including effects on social relations, effects on the material, moral, and psychological condition of workers, communities, and consumers, and effects on the environment. A desirable means of allocation that we favor in place of markets and central planning must therefore allocate resources, labor, and the products of labor in a flexible manner, taking into account all these matters and also able to realign in case of unexpected crises or shocks. A worthy approach to allocation must not homogenize taste, but instead abide and even promote diverse preferences, even as it preserves privacy and individuality. Worthy allocation must not pit actors against one another as competing buyers and sellers or class antagonists. It must instead engender sociality and solidarity. Ideally, it should make each person's advance depend on and promote the advance of others. And it must not prioritize the interests of owners or coordinators, but instead it must meet the needs and develop the capacities of all workers and consumers. Desirable allocation must also operate without class division and class rule but instead with equity and classlessness. It must operate without authoritarianism, or even disproportionate influence for a few people, but instead with self-management for all. And finally, in deciding what to do with any particular asset, whether it is people's labor or a resource like oil, or a tool like some technology, desirable allocation needs to take into account the true and full personal, social, and environmental effects of contending choices. And beyond even all the above, as if that wasn't enough, attaining self-management of allocation by according influence to all who are involved in proportion as they are affected is clearly no little ambition. For it turns out that virtually everyone is, to at least some degree, affected by each decision made in an economy. In other words, in any institution, whether a factory, university, health center, or whatever, many interests need to be appropriately represented in decision-making. For example, there is the workforce itself, obviously affected by their actions each day. Does their work exhaust and deaden or uplift and inspire them? And there is the community in which the workplace is located. Is it polluted, for example, or is it respected and even uplifted? And there are the users of the products or services, presumably benefiting from what they receive, and not losing because labor and imports were not put to a different use that they would have preferred. For example, if a society is making cars instead of public transport, I may gain from having a car, but I may lose due to the lack of public transport. If a society is making tanks and missiles, I may be told I am gaining safety and bad guys are being weakened, but I will certainly lose due to gargantuan productive capacity going to war and waste instead of to schools, hospitals, housing, parks, and infrastructure. We know that from our treatment of what we call the property problem, a few episodes back, that to have self-management of economic life, we have to have institutions that eliminate influence for private owners of the means of production and of resources. And we do that by ensuring that that type of ownership no longer exists. But we now know that we also have to have institutions that ensure that the disproportionate influence and distorted motives that private owners held are not simply morphed a bit and handed on to a class of coordinators, leaving workers still subordinate. More positively, we know that we have to have institutions that deliver to each economic actor a degree of influence proportional to the degree they are affected by such matters as how much in total is produced, and how much of any given product is produced, and how each product is valued, and therefore how much each person can get due to their income. For these ends, we not only need directly democratic workers and consumers' councils, we also need allocation connections between workers and consumers that preserve and enhance informed, insightful, self-managed decisions. And so that is our allocation task if we are to have allocation augment rather than subvert equitable remuneration, balanced job complexes, and self-management for both workers and consumers. So now we can ask, what institutions can accomplish all this? Admittedly, this is just a podcast episode, but still, even succinctly, what can we say by way of getting into this very complex issue? Suppose in place of top-down allocation via centrally planned choices, and in place of competitive market allocation by atomized competing buyers and sellers, we are able to opt for informed, self-managed, cooperative negotiation of inputs and outputs by socially entwined actors. And suppose for each of these actors we could opt for them to have influence over negotiations in proportion as choices affect them. And suppose we could arrange that they each have accurate, full social and environmental costs and benefits to assess, and that they each have appropriate training, confidence, conditions, and motivations to accurately develop, communicate, and express their preferences. If we could arrange all that, would we then have worthy allocation? Yes, I claim that that approach to allocation, if we can conceive institutions to make it real, to make it viable, would, as we seek, compatibly advance council-centered participatory self-management, equitable remuneration, balanced job complexes, and classlessness. And I would also claim that it would also provide proper valuations of personal, social, and ecological impacts. Participatory planning, the next key component of eco-socialism or of participatory socialism, or of participatory economics, whichever name you may prefer to use for the economic features we have been describing, is conceived to accomplish all this. In participatory planning, if it is all we hope for it to be, worker and consumer councils will propose their work activities and consumption preferences in light of continually updated knowledge of the personal, local, national, and ecological implications of their choices. What might that look like? workers and consumers would cooperatively negotiate workplace and consumer inputs and outputs. They would initially arrive at their preferences in their council, and then they would employ a back-and-forth communication of their preferences using what are called indicative prices, facilitation boards, rounds of accommodating to new information, and other participatory planning features which would permit people to express and refine their desires in light of feedback about other people's desires. That is, workers and consumers would indicate in their councils their personal and group preferences. I say I want to do such and such. You say you want to do such and such. Our workplace settles on a proposal that we collectively wish to produce. Consumers and other producers do essentially the same thing. We and everyone then learn what preferences others and some have indicated. Then they and we alter and resubmit our preferences in light of the new information we have received. And, of course, we keep in mind our need to balance a personally fulfilling pattern of work and of consumption with the requirements of a viable overall plan. Each participant in this process, both as a worker and as a consumer, seeks personal and collective group well-being and development. However, because of the whole array of institutions, and especially equitable remuneration and balanced job complexes... Each participant can improve his or her situation only by acting in accord with more general social benefit. I can gain, that is, by improvement in social output, and everybody else gains from that as well. I can gain by improvement in the quality and circumstances of work, and everybody else gains by that as well. I can also work somewhat longer or less long myself, for example, depending on my preference for leisure or income, but that choice doesn't hurt anyone else. When workers and consumers express their individual and collective preferences and hear back the sums and averages across the whole economy, the new information leads them to make new proposals in a sequence of cooperatively negotiated refinements until settling on a plan. As in any economy, for consumers to decide on what they want for their share of the social product, they must take into account their income, which is proportional to the duration, intensity, and onerousness of their socially valued labor, and they must also take into account the relative course of available products that they desire, and how much they desire them, for that matter, as conveyed by the participatory planning process. This occurs not only for individuals deciding personal consumption, but also for households, communes, neighborhoods, and regions deciding collective consumption. And all this is carried out through consumer councils, whose proposals, taken together, sum to the cumulative demand put forth by all of society. Workers in their workplace councils similarly indicate how much work they wish to do in light of requests for their product, as well as accounting for their own labor leisure preferences. The proposals of workers in each firm, taken all together, sum to industry and societal proposed output. That is, while workplace proposals are collective for the whole workplace, they are arrived at with input from each individual in the workplace. Both proposed supply from workers and proposed demand by consumers, basically the same people in different roles, are refined each in light of the other during the multi-round planning process. It is this revision process that facilitates allocation arriving at true social and ecological costs and benefits. In a participatory economy... It is interesting and important to note that no one would have any interest in selling products at inflated prices or in selling more items than consumers actually need. Because imposing high prices and inducing purchases beyond what will fulfill people will not increase anyone's income. Even if a workforce in some workplace could set some false inflated price for what it was selling, or could use some sort of manipulative technique to trick consumers into buying more than they could really benefit from, the income of each of its workers would not thereby climb, since income doesn't depend on overall value of sales. On the other hand, producing too little or too poorly for the work to all be socially valuable, given the labor and resources involved, would diminish each worker's income. There is therefore a reason to meet needs and to utilize and develop potentials, but not to do more or less than that. And the same goes for somehow getting people to buy what they don't really need, In fact, why would I want to produce something, applying my time and energy, that wasn't actually going to benefit folks? I wouldn't, not in a participatory economic setting, where there is nothing gained, only losses from such behavior. Nor is there any need for firms to compete for market share. Individuals and units would not advance by way of beating others in any manner. Rather, motives would simply be to meet needs and to develop potentials at whatever level turns out to be preferred, in light of all costs and benefits, and without wasting assets. We would seek to produce what is socially valuable and useful, while we compatibly and cooperatively fulfill our own as well as the rest of society's preferences. And this would be true, not because people are suddenly saints, but because with sensible institutions, cooperation would benefit everyone, and waste would harm everyone. Merciless fleecing, indeed fleecing of any sort, would have no place in the participatory economy, because there is neither means to do it, nor gains to be had from doing it. Even theft would make little sense, it turns out, because if you stole to any significant degree, you would have to enjoy it in your basement, since there could be no ostentatious consumption other than due to theft. So ostentatiously consuming would broadcast that you are a thief. For example... Revealing a bit more of the character of our preferred institutions, suppose you are Roger Federer, a famous, really, really excellent tennis player. Society likes watching high-quality tennis, and you like playing, so you are on a team. You have a balanced job complex, of course, since everyone who works does. And you get income for the duration, intensity, and onerousness of your work. So your income is average for society, or somewhat more or less, depending on whether you prefer greater effort or more leisure, greater income, or more leisure. However, you are so good that a lot of people would simply love to play a set or two with you. You could give lessons, for example, but you want to earn lots more. So you decide to augment your income by selling playdates to people on on the side at very, very high price per hour. Can you, and will you, in fact, want to? Well, to do it, you have to violate the norms of work. You have to operate outside the purview of counsel. You also have to get your payment in kind, meaning that the people who want to play with you can't give you cash, but have to give you stuff they have gotten for for their income. And there is another obstacle, even before the issue of it being illegal. That is, suppose you do it and you get tons of stuff. What do you do with all that stuff? You can't enjoy it in public. There is no legitimate way to have accumulated so much stuff. In in current economies, people who rip off can live ostentatiously without real difficulty. In an equitable society, you would have to enjoy your stuff in your cellar. In public, it would immediately give away that you have gotten it by violating norms. And there is even more. Where do you get all the tennis balls needed and the courts to play on? The tennis councils are not going to allot that for antisocial behavior. Without belaboring unduly, This is just a tiny look into the details of participatory planning and participatory economic operations beyond the bare outline of key features we have been presenting. So getting back to the characteristics of this hoped-for participatory planning, workers and consumers, separately and collectively, would communicate their preferences for desired production and consumption by means of special mechanisms provided for the purpose. Cooperative negotiation would follow in a series of planning rounds every participant would have an interest in most effectively utilizing productive potentials to meet needs, because everyone would get an equitable share of the overall social output. Let me elaborate just a bit on that. Imagine a population. It produces what we call a social product. Each person can get an average share of that product, or can vary from that average share, because either the person arranges to work a little longer or harder or under worse conditions than average, due to wanting a little more income, even at the cost of the extra effort, or, conversely, the person arranges to work a little less long, or less hard, or at better conditions than average, due to wanting to exert a bit less, even at the cost of receiving a little less product. The key thing to note is that the effort we contribute and the associated income we get are the crux of the matter for everyone. They establish our economic well-being. They determine the combined benefit and cost to us of what we do and of what we receive with the sum being essentially the same for everyone. And this hypothetical population is exactly the population of our revolutionized economy. So, to repeat, every participant would have an interest in most effectively utilizing productive potentials to meet needs, because everyone would get an equitable share of the overall social output. Total output rises. My part of the total output rises, as does everyone else's. Total output falls my part of the total falls, as does everyone else's. Each person would also favor workplaces and all of society making investments that reduce drudge work and that improve the quality of society's balanced job complex, because this is the job complex quality that everyone on average enjoys. The logic is the same as for income. Our interests are entwined. We all want society's balanced job complex to be desirable and to grow steadily more desirable because we all do our economic activity in a balanced job complex. We have suggested that in participatory allocation, plans for economic production and consumption are continually updated and refined. That doesn't say there would be no errors or imperfections in the day-to-day and year-to-year operations of a participatory economy. Nor does it say people's preferences would never change. Instead, it says that such deviations from ideal choices as occur during planning would arise from ignorance or from mistakes, but not from the system by its logic causing such deviations. The system wouldn't propel accumulation, wouldn't push for constant increases in effort, despite people not preferring that, as does market allocation. The system wouldn't bias against public goods, wouldn't underassess the importance of ecological impacts, and wouldn't ignore the personal and even more so the social costs of economic choices, as does market allocation. The system wouldn't divide actors into a class of subordinate workers and dominant coordinators, as do markets and central planning. With participatory allocation of the sort we are discussing, assuming, for now, that its features can be filled out and would prove workable, in no way could one sector systematically benefit at the cost of another. Gaining at the expense of others goes from being the aim of economic activity to being a virtual impossibility for economic activity. Everyone is treated according to the same norms that privilege no one above others. Mistaken choices and deviations don't snowball or multiply in a manner that continually benefits some in a ruling class to the detriment of others in the working class. In another aspect of allocation, to choose what role and position to occupy in a participatory workplace, each person would consult his or her own personal tastes and talents. Of course, each person would be better suited and more likely to be happy at some pursuits than at other pursuits, maybe more technical or maybe more verbal, or maybe indoors or outdoors, maybe cooking or maybe constructing, or whatever. However, each person's job search would be about meeting personal preferences equitably, Most important, there would be no choice that one can individually make, or that a group can collectively make, that would accrue what other members of society would deem unjust power, wealth, or circumstance. It is a very pretty picture I am painting, but I want to now make something very clear. No one listening to this episode of Revolution Z ought to now be ready to give allegiance to participatory planning based on just what I have presented. This episode has certainly offered some description and some supporting arguments, I hope pretty compelling ones, but allocation is a complex matter. I barely even mentioned much of what participatory planning system would have to include. Also, concerns and objections are not yet even mentioned, much less addressed. As with all episodes in this vision sequence of the podcast Revolution Z, my comments are a very succinct presentation. And in this case, it is all the more true since allocation is considerably more complex than any other issues we have treated, including ownership, the division of labor, and even the norms of remuneration for income. One way to get a better grip on what participatory planning is about, therefore, beyond our overview, is to acknowledge that surely there must arise objections to something as unusual and different as participatory planning. Indeed, you may be feeling some of those objections yourself which is why our next episode will raise and seek to address many such objections, and in doing so, will hopefully deepen our perception of the shape and logic of a possible alternative to markets and central planning. And even that won't be the end of our arguing for what we are calling participatory planning, but it will take us closer to an ending. But now, speaking about allocation, to end this episode on a more mundane but nonetheless immediately important point, Revolution Z needs some support that our market system, our government, and our other current social institutions will not provide. Revolution Z's allotment of resources to proceed and grow depends on voluntary support from people who themselves listen to and appreciate the podcast, or even from people who simply believe exploration of serious issues of vision and strategy is socially important and should be promoted, even beyond the impact on their own personal enjoyment and insight. So I hope you are, or you become, such a person. To provide the voluntary aid, you can promote Revolution Z to people you know by whatever means you have at your disposal. You can also visit our Patreon page, Z, where you can find out more about our efforts and, if you so choose, contribute some material aid to its continuation. Such material aid will permit me to keep working on Revolution Z. It will permit enlarging Revolution Z's schedule from one to two or even to three episodes weekly. And it will permit involving guests and even listeners in future episodes. And, that said, for now, hoping for your support, this is Michael Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.